0: but built and furnished for him the prophet's chamber. Verses 8-10 to Then we beheld her remarkable faith, for instead of wringing her hands in despair upon the sudden death of her child, she promptly rode to Mount Carmel where Elisha then was, with the evident expectation that God would undertake for her in that extremity through his servant. Nor was her hope disappointed. A miracle was wrought, and her dead son quickened. But now that the seven years' famine was imminent, Elisha did not keep to himself the knowledge he had received of the Lord, but put it to a good use, bethinking himself of the family which had shown him kindness in his earlier days, warning her of the sore judgment that was about to fall upon the land of Samaria. The prophet's action contains important instruction for us, especially for those who are the ministers of God. First, we are shown that we are not to selfishly keep to ourselves the spiritual light God vouchsafes to us but pass it on to those capacitated to receive it. Second, the servant of God is not to lose interest in those unto whom God made him a blessing in the past, but seek opportunities to further help them in spiritual things, particularly endeavouring to express his gratitude to those who befriended him in earlier days. Often this can be most effectually accomplished by prayer for them or by sending them a special word of greeting. See Romans sixteen six. Elisha did not consider he had already discharged his indebtedness to this woman by restoring her son to life, but as a fresh emergency had arisen, he gave timely counsel. Third here, too, we see God honoring those who honored him. In the past, she had ministered to the temple needs of his servant, and he had not forgotten this. Having received a prophet in the name of a prophet, she now received the prophet's reward, light on her path. Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored, saying, Arise and go thou and thy household and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn Second Kings eight one as there is no mention of her husband throughout the whole of this narrative, it is likely he had died in the interval between chapters four and eight, and that she was now a widow. If so It illustrates the special care the Lord has for widows and orphans. But let us observe the exercise of His sovereignty on this occasion, for He does not always act uniformly. In an earlier famine, He had miraculously sustained the widow of Zarephath by maintaining her meal and oil. He could have done the same in this instance, but was pleased to use other means, yet just as real and effective in supplying her every need. Learn, we must never prescribe to the Lord nor limit Him in our thoughts to any particular form or avenue of deliverance, but trustfully leave ourselves in His hands and meekly submit to His imperial but all-wise ordering of our lot. Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. How frequently are we reminded that here have we no continuing city, which should cause us to hold all earthly things with a very light hand. This incident also reminds us that the righteous are occasioned many inconveniences because of the conduct of the wicked. Nevertheless, the Lord evidences his particular care of his own when his judgments fall upon a nation. Observe to what a severe test this woman's faith was now submitted. It was no small matter to leave her home and property and journey with her household into another land, the inhabitants of which had for so long time been hostile to the Israelites, It called for implicit confidence in the veracity of God's servant. Ah, my hearer, nothing but a genuine faith in God and His word is sufficient for the human heart in such an emergency, but the mind of one who trusts Him will be kept in perfect peace. And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God, Verse 2. Note well how that is phrased. She regarded Elisha's instruction as something more than the kindly advice of a personal friend, viewing him as the messenger of God unto her. In other words, she looked above the prophet to his master, and accepted the counsel as from him. Thus she acted in faith which was in entire accord with what was previously recorded of her. There is no hint that she murmured at her lot or complained at the severity of her trial. No, when faith is an exercise, the spirit of murmuring is quelled. Contrarywise, when we grumble at our lot, it is sure proof that unbelief is dominant within us. Nor did she yield to a fatalistic inertia and say, If God has called for a famine, I must bow to it, and if I perish, I perish. Instead, she acted as a rational creature, discharged her responsibility, foresaw the place of danger and took refuge in a temporary haven of shelter. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Verse 2. Not in the adjoining territory of Judah, be it noted, for probably even at that date the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. John four nine. It is sad, yet true, that a Christian will often receive kinder treatment at the hands of strangers than from those who profess to be the people of God. This Israelitish woman had not been warranted in taking refuge among the Philistines without divine permission, for God had said unto Israel, Ye shall be holy unto me, For I the Lord am holy and have severed you from other people that ye should be mine. Leviticus 20.26 And therefore did he declare, The people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Numbers 23.9 But note well that it is not said that she and her household Settled down in the land of the Philistines, but only that she sojourned therein, which means that she did not make herself one with him, but lived as a stranger in their midst. Compare Genesis 23.4, Leviticus 25.23, And sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years, that is surely remarkable and very blessing. The Philistines had long been the enemies of Israel and had recently made war the one with the other. Yet here was this Israelitish woman and her household permitted to live peacefully in their midst and her temporal needs supplied by them. In that We must see the secret power of God working on her behalf and giving her favor in their eyes. The Lord never confounds those who truly trust Him. And as this woman had honored His word through His prophet, so now He honored her faith. Her ways pleased the Lord, and therefore He made her enemies to be at peace with her. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines. Verse 3. This too is equally blessed. She had not found the society of the Philistines so congenial that she wished to spend the remainder of her days with her. But observe how it is worded. Not when the famine was over, she returned to Samaria, but at the seven years' end mentioned by the prophet, the word of God through his servant was what regulated her. And she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. Verse 3. It is not clear whether her property had reverted to the crown upon her emigration or whether someone had unlawfully seized it and now refused to relinquish the same. But whichever it was, she did not shirk her duty, but actively discharged her responsibility. She was neither a believer in passive resistance, nor of looking to God to undertake for her while she shelved her duty, which had been highly presumptuous. Thomas Scott has pointed out how this verse illustrates the benefit of magistracy and rightly added in connection therewith, believers may on important occasions avail themselves of their privileges as members of the community, provided they are not actuated by covetousness or resentment, do not manifest a contentious spirit and Make no appeal in a doubtful or suspicious cause, and rulers should award justice without respect of persons and compel the injurious to restitution. End of had not this woman now appealed to the king for the restoration of her own property, she had condoned a wrong and refused to uphold the principles of righteousness sixth, its sequel. This is equally striking, for the anointed eye will clearly perceive the power of the Lord working on behalf of his handmaid. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elijah hath done. And it came to pass, as He was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. Verses 4-6 Who can fail to see the superintending hand of God in the king's desire to hear of Elisha's miracles? The presence of one well qualified to inform him the timing of such an occurrence, the interest in this woman which would be awakened in the king, and his willingness to grant her full restitution. Seventh, its lesson. In the course of our remarks, we have called attention to many details of this incident, which we may profitably take to heart. But there is one outstanding thing in it which specially claims our notice, namely the wonder-working providences of God in behalf of the woman through Elisha, the Philistines, Gehazi, and the king of Israel. And thus it is that he still acts on behalf of his own, making gracious provision for them in an evil day, Whatever be the means or the instruments He makes use of in providing a refuge for us in a time of trouble, it is as truly the Lord's doing and should be just as marvelous in our eyes, especially when God constrains the wicked to deal kindly with us, as if He openly worked for us what are technically called miracles. At the close of the 107th Psalm, after recounting the various deliverances the Lord wrought for those who cried unto him, this comment is made Whosoever is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. The greater pains we take to observe God's hand, undertaking for us by his providences, the better shall we understand his loving kindness, and the more confidence shall we have in him. Chapter 28, 17th Miracle. The opening verse of Second Kings 8 informs us that the Lord had called for a seven years' famine on Samaria, and in our last, we considered one of the things which transpired during that sore judgment from heaven. That which is now to engage our attention is not to be regarded as something which occurred after the expiration of the famine, but rather as what took place at its beginning. After tracing out the experiences of the woman from Shunam, The Holy Spirit picks up the thread of verse 1 and informs us of the movements of the prophet himself. And Elisha came to Damascus, 2 Kings 8, 7. He too left Samaria, for it was no place for him now that the indignation of the Lord was upon it. When God deals in judgment with a people, his temporal plagues are usually accompanied by spiritual deprivations, often by removing his servants into a corner. Isaiah 30:20, And then the people of God are left as sheep without a shepherd, one of the acutest afflictions they can experience. It was thus with Israel in the earlier famine in the days of Ahab. There is no intimation that Elijah did any preaching during these three and a half years, for the Lord sent him to Kerith and then to Zarephath. Sad indeed is the plight of any people, where they are not only scourged temporarily, but have their spiritual blessings taken from them too. During the times of the judges, when every man did that which was right in his own eyes, Judges twenty one twenty five, we are told in those days there was no open vision, first Samuel three one, which signifies there was no accredited servant of God to whom the people could go for a knowledge of the divine mind and will. So again in the days of Ezekiel it was announced, mischief shall come upon mischief and rumor upon rumor, and as the climactic calamity, then shall they seek a vision of the prophet, but the law shall perish from the priest. Judges 7, 26. Little as it is realized by the present generation, the most solemn, fearful, and portentous of all the marks of God's anger is the withholding of a spirit-filled, faithful, and edifying ministry. For then there is a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Amos 8, 11 There is much more than appears on the surface in that short statement, And Elisha came down to Damascus, Solomon, indeed, is that brief and simple sentence, denoting as it does that the prophet had left Samaria, left it because his ministry there was unwelcome, wasted. How often we find a parallel to this in the Gospels. At the very beginning of his public ministry, we read that Christ came to Capernaum, Luke 4.31. Why? Why? Because at Nazareth they were filled with wrath at his teaching. Verses 28 and 29. He entered into a ship and passed over. Why? Because at Capernaum the whole city besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Matthew 8:34 34 and 9, 1. He withdrew himself from thence, because the Pharisees had held a council against him. Matthew 12:14 and 15. He could there do no mighty works because of their unbelief. What follows? And he went round about their villages teaching. Mark 6, 5 and 6. It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing he put it from you, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Acts 13.46 When God calls a pastor to another charge, the church he has left has reason to search itself before the Lord as to the cause. First, its connection. And Elisha came to Damascus. 2 Kings 8.7 The opening and links the incident which follows with the first verse of our chapter. But more, as was the case in several previous instances, it points a series of striking contrasts between this and the events recorded in the context. There, the central character was a godly woman. Here it is a wicked man. In the former, the prophet took the initiative. Communicating with a woman, now a king sends to inquire of the man of God. There his prophetic announcement was promptly credited. Here it is scornfully ridiculed. Verse 13. In that the king's servant told him the truth. Verse 5. In this another king's servant tells him a lie. Verse 13. There God put forth His power and graciously provided for one of His own. Here He removes His restraining hand and suffers one of the reprobate to meet with a violent end. The previous miracle closed with the restoration of the woman's property to her, this with a callous murder and the usurper occupying the throne. Though there be nothing in the narrative to intimate specifically when it was that Elisha came to Damascus, yet the introductory end seems to make it clear that the prophet took this journey during the seven years' famine, and probably at an early stage of the same. As the Lord was not pleased on this occasion, to work in a mysterious and extraordinary way for the temporal preservation of the woman of Shunem, as he had for the widow at Zarephath, but provided for her needs by the more regular yet not less wonderful orderings of providence on her behalf, so it would seem that he did for his servant. And as she sojourned in the land of the Philistines, So he now sought refuge in the capital of Syria, even though that was the very country which had for so long been hostile to Samaria. Nor did he go into hiding there, but counted upon his master, protecting him even in the midst of a people who had so often preyed upon Israel. That Elisha's presence in Damascus was no secret is clear from what follows. Second, its occasion, and Elisha came to Damascus, the most ancient city in the world, with the possible exception of Jerusalem. Josephus says that it was founded by Uz, the son of Aaron, and grandson of Shem, Unquote. It is mentioned as early as Genesis 14.15 in the days of Abraham, 2000 B.C. It was captured and occupied in turn by the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Paul commenced his ministry there, Acts 9, 19-22. It remains to this day. In the time of Ahab, Ben-Hadad, after his defeat by the Samaritans and the sparing of his life, said to the king of Israel, Thou shalt make streets for them in Damascus, as my father made streets in Samaria. Upon which Ahab said, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. 1 Kings 20.34 Whether Ben-Hadad ever made good his promise, Scripture does not inform us. But his covenant with Ahab certainly gave Elisha the right of asylum in Damascus. That Elisha had not fled to Damascus in the energy of the flesh in order to escape the hardships and horrors of the famine, but had gone there in the will of the Lord, is evident from the sequel. In what follows we are shown how, while here, he received communications from God and was used by Him. That is one of the ways in which the child of God may ascertain whether or no he is in the place he should be, or whether in self-will he has forsaken the path of duty. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he is that loveth me, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. John 14.21 Make myself a living reality to His soul. Make discoveries of my glory to Him through the written Word. But when we take matters into our own hands and our ways displease the Lord, communion is severed and He hides His face from us. When we choose our own way and the Spirit is grieved, He no longer takes of the things of Christ and shows them unto us, But disquiets our hearts because of our sins. Yes, God made use of Elisha while he sojourned in Damascus. But how varied, how solemnly varied are the several ways in which he is pleased to employ his servants. Not now was he commissioned to heal a leper, nor to restore a dead child to life, but rather to announce the death of a king. Herein we have shuddered forth the more painful and exacting side of the minister's duty. He is required to set before men the way of life and the way of death. He is under bonds to faithfully make known the doom awaiting the wicked, as well as the bliss reserved for the righteous. He is to preach the law as well as the gospel, to describe the everlasting torments of hell as well as the unending glory of heaven, he is bidden to preach the gospel to every creature and announce in no uncertain tones, "He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned." Mark 16:16. 16, 16. Only by so doing. Will he be warranted in saying, I am pure from the blood of all, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God? Acts 20, 26 and 27. And Ben-Hadad the king of Syria was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come hither. 2 Kings 8, 7. The wearing of a crown does not exempt its possessor from the common troubles unto which man is born. Rather, does it afford additional opportunities for gratifying the lust of the flesh, which will only increase his troubles? It is only by being temperate in all things that many sicknesses can be avoided, for walking according to the rules of Scripture Promotes health of body as well as health of soul. When sickness overtakes a saint, his first concern should not be its removal, but a definite seeking unto the Lord to ascertain why he has afflicted him. Job 10:2. His next concern should be to have his sickness sanctified to the good of his soul, that he may learn the lessons that chastisement is designed to teach him, that in the issue he may be able to say, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Psalm 119.71 But it is the privilege of faith to become better acquainted with Jehovah Rophi, the Lord that healeth thee. Exodus 15.26 In the case before us, it was not a child of God who had fallen sick, but a heathen monarch. And the king said unto Hazael, Take a present in thine hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? Verse 8. What a startling antithesis this presents from what was before us in 6.31. Only a short time previously, the king of Israel had sworn a horrible oath that Elisha should be slain. Here, a foreign king owns him as the man of God and makes inquiry concerning his own life or death. Striking, too, is the contrast between Hadad's action here and the last thing recorded of him when he sent his forces to take Elisha captive. 6.14 How fickle is human nature, one day ready to pluck out their eyes and give them to a servant of God, and the next regarding Him as their enemy because He told them the truth. Galatians 4.15-16 and But now the Syrian king was concerned about his condition and anxious to know the outcome of his illness. It appears to have been the practice in those days for a king who was seriously ill to make a formal inquiry from one whom he regarded as endowed with supernatural knowledge. Thus we read that when Jeroboam's son fell sick, he sent his wife to ascertain of Ahijah the prophet, what shall become of the child? 1 Kings 14, 1-3 and again we are told that Ahaziah sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. 2 Kings 1, verse 2 From what is recorded in 1 Kings twenty-eight, twenty-three, and the sequel, we may conclude that Ben-Hadad had lost confidence in his own gods and placed more reliance upon the word of Elisha. Yet it is to be noted that he neither asked for his prayers nor expressed any desire of a visit from him. Seriously sick as he felt himself to be, he was not concerned about his soul but only of his body. Throughout the whole of his career there is nothing to indicate he had the slightest regard for the Lord, but much to the contrary. So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, forty camels burden, and came and stood before him and said, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? Verse 9. The present was to intimate that he came on a peaceful and friendly mission and with no design of doing the prophet an injury or carrying him away as a prisoner. This too was in accord with the custom of those days and the ways of Orientals. Thus, when Saul wished to consult Samuel about the lost asses of his father, he lamented the fact that he had not a present to bring to the man of God. 1 Samuel 9.7 And when the wife of Jeroboam went to inquire of the prophet Ahijah, she took a present for him. 1 Kings 14.3 But looking higher, we may see in the lavish nature of Ben-Hadad's present the guiding hand of God and an earnest for his servant that he would spread a table for him in the presence of his enemies. We are not told that Elisha refused this present, nor was there any reason why he should. Perhaps he sent a goodly portion thereof to relieve the distress of the schools of the prophets still in Samaria. And Elisha said unto him, Go, say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover. Howbeit, the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. Verse 10. Observe first a significant omission. Elisha did not offer to go and visit Ben-Hadad. That was not because he was callous, for the very next verse shows he was a man of compassion. Rather, was he restrained by the Lord, who had no design of mercy unto the Syrian king. Very solemn was that. But what are we to make of the prophet's enigmatical language? Why this? The disease from which your master is suffering will not produce a fatal end. Nevertheless, the Lord has showed me that his death is imminent by violence. Another proof that the Lord God revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophet's. Amos 3, seven. It is on this same principle we discover the harmony between there being an appointed time to man upon earth. Job 7, one, And why shouldst thou die before thy time? Ecclesiastes 7.17 Before the normal course of nature. And the fifteen years added to the course of Hezekiah's life. God intervening to stay the ordinary working of his disease. Third, his accompaniment. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed and the man of God wept. Verse 11. The first clause requires to be interpreted in the light of all that follows. Had it stood by itself, we should have understood it to signify that Hazael was deeply grieved by the prophet's announcement and sought to control his emotions, though that had not accounted for the prophet's bursting into tears. But the sequel obliges us to conclude that, so far from being horrified at the news he had just received, Hazael was highly gratified and the setting of his countenance was an endeavor to conceal his elation. Accordingly, we regard the until he was ashamed, the Hebrew word is often rendered confounded and once put to confusion, as denoting that under the piercing gaze of Elisha, he realized he had not succeeded and was chagrined that his countenance revealed the wicked pleasure he found in the prophet's reply. God has wisely, justly, and mercifully ordered it that, to a considerable extent, the countenance is made to betray the workings of our minds and the state of our hearts. The servant of God was not deceived by Hosea's play-acting, For he not only had the aid of his own eyes to perceive the attempted deception, but also had a direct revelation from heaven concerning the sequel. The weeping of the man of God was not occasioned by his knowledge of the violent end awaiting Ben-Hadad, but rather from what the Lord had also shown him concerning the fearful horrors which should shortly be inflicted upon Israel. In his tears, we behold elisha foreshadowing his incarnate Lord who wept over jerusalem luke nineteen forty one He was no heartless stoic, even though he knew that his nation fully deserved the still sore judgments which God would shortly visit upon it through the agency of the man who now stood before him yet elisha could not be unmoved at his prophetic foreview of their terrible afflictions. The prophets were men of deep feeling, as the history of Jeremiah abundantly manifests. So too was Paul. Philippians 3.18 So is every true servant of Christ. Fourth, its nature. And Hazael said, why weepest, my lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with a sword, and wilt dash their children, and rip up their women with child. Verse 12. Like the two preceding ones, this miracle consists of a supernatural disclosure, the announcing of a prophetic revelation which he had received direct from God, in this case a double one, the death of Ben-Hadad and the judgments which should come upon Israel. So far was Hazael from being melted by Elisha's tears. He was probably nonplussed by them and in order... To gain time for composure of mind, asked the question which he did. It is solemn to note that while Elisha announced what he foresaw would happen, he made no effort to dissuade or deter Hazael, as our Lord foretold the treachery of Judas, but sought not to turn him from his evil purpose. Fifth, its challenge. And Hazael said, But what, is thy servant a dog, that he should do this great thing? Verse 13. Hotly did he resent such a charge, nor did he at that moment deem himself capable of such atrocities, nor did he wish the prophet to regard him as such a wretch. How little did the unregenerate realize or suspect the desperate wickedness of their hearts. How anxious are they that others should not think the worst of it. When not immediately exposed to temptations, they do not believe they are capable of such enormities and are highly insulted when the contrary is affirmed. And Elisha answered, The Lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria, Again we see the extraordinary powers with which the prophets were invested, though Elijah gives God the glory for his. When he ascended the throne, all human restraint would be removed from Hazael, and enlarged powers and opportunities would be his for working evil. 6. It's Fulfillment. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou shouldst surely recover. Verse 14. Thus did Hosea seek to put off his guard, the one he intended to murder, by deliberately lying to him. And it came to pass on the morrow, that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died, and Hazael reigned in his stead. Verse 15. And this was the man who a few hours before indignantly denied he had the character of a savage dog. In the fearful doom of Ben-Hadad we see the righteous retribution of God. Having been a man of violence, he met with a violent end as he had lived so he died see first kings tragedy 20, 16 21 26 29 chapter 22 verse 1 second kings 6 8 24 and for Hazael in the future second kings 10 32 Seventh, its meaning. This is so obvious that very few words are needed. It is the glaring contrast between the faithful and the unfaithful servant. Elisha had unflinchingly declared the counsel which he had received from the Lord, however unpalatable it was to his hearer. But Hazael gives us a picture of the hireling, the false prophet, the deceiver of souls. Ostensibly, he went forth in obedience to his master's commission. Verse 9. In reality, he was playing the part of a hypocrite. Verse 11. When he delivered his message, he falsified it by withholding the most pointed and solemn part of it. Verse 14). How many there are like him, uttering smooth things, and remaining guiltily silent on the doom awaiting the wicked.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.